it's our joy to keep going in Psalms. We, sometimes we cancel Sunday school on Steadfast Sunday, but we just started. So I, I just couldn't uh, bring myself to cancel this morning so that we could really uh, delve into t- Psalm 2. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look briefly at Psalm 2 for just a few minutes this morning. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet together as your people. It's a nice, delightful, cool morning, and we've begun the autumn season. It's always in the life of the church. seems to be the season where things happen, and, and there's newness of life and, and renewing of, of uh, our fellowship and our determination to hear the Word of God and to grow in Christ. And I pray that this morning would be just a taste, a beginning to get our hearts attuned to love your word, to love the God of the word. And in particular this morning in Psalm 2 to uh, be able to look at the glory of our Savior. Our Lord Jesus Christ predicted so long ago as being the king who would return and who would break the backs of his enemies and provide refuge to all who would place their faith in him. We thank you that our Savior is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our our hiding place. He hides us from the wrath of God. He has hidden us from the consequences of our own sin. And he holds us until that day when we are safely home. I pray that this morning would guide our hearts toward those thoughts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 2, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is really uh, kind of part two of Psalm 1, and they're put together on purpose, and they're, they're, they're there as a, as a good pairing to begin the book of Psalms. And we saw that Psalm 1 gave a contrast of two types of people. Two types of men. They're the godly and the wicked. Those who follow God by humble, repentant faith, demonstrated by an obedient life of wisdom that we saw, and those who reject God and live a life of staying firmly guilty before God and purposefully mocking God. That there's no accident to this. This is, this is intentional. This is purposeful. And so Psalm 2 takes us deeper into that realm. Psalm 2 addresses the mocker of God. The one who refuses to repent, the one who refuses to obey, the one who continues to believe the lie of his own self-righteousness. And what Psalm 2 really does is it takes the mask off, the the charade is over, the act is done, the acting can stop now, that there's no, that self-righteousness ultimately reveals itself as being in a rage against God. And so there's no more religiosity, there's no more faking, there's no more false church members, the masks come off completely. Now, I have a bit of a challenge um, before me this morning. On Sunday evenings, um, beginning next Sunday, I'm beginning my next mini-series in our overall Millennium Series, and we're going to start looking at Old Testament witnesses to a coming Millennial Kingdom. The first 17 messages or so have all been introductory, and now we're going to actually get to some texts. And the second message, against all odds, is on Psalm 2. 
And I, I did the math on this. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and if I preached two of them every Sunday, it would take 11.9 years to get through them. So the odds of this chapter hitting at the same time almost uh, is almost astronomical, but I took that as, uh, as the Lord's will. So my focus this morning is going to be um, primarily on the unmasking of the sinful intentions of the mocker. And we'll actually do something quite different uh, in a couple of weeks on Sunday evening because it's more focused on the, the millennial reign of Christ. But I want to focus primarily on the, the fact that Psalm 2 unmasks the sinful intentions of mankind. And it also does something that's, that's glorious and terrifying all at the same time. It gives a behind-the-scenes look at God's response to that unmasking. God's response to the unrighteous. Now, Psalm 2 is very structured, even in your Bibles. It's probably divided into four parts. It can also be divided into three parts. And so I'm going to organize this as simply as I can. And we're just going to use geography to organize our thoughts because the psalm can actually be divided by location. And so the, the first location is on the earth, and that's the rebellion of man. The second location is in heaven, and that's the response of God. And the third location is back on the earth, and that's the responsibility of man. So I'll repeat that for you. We're going to look at the rebellion of man. That's on earth. The response of God, that's the scene in heaven. And the responsibility of man, and we're back on earth for that. So that's, I think, an easy way to divide our thoughts for just a few minutes this morning. So let's look at Psalm 2 together. I'm going to read it to us, and then we'll go bit by bit through it. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. And He speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I'm not going to spend any time trying to prove to you that this is a messianic psalm because if you don't see that, I don't know what to tell you. And this has been accepted by every major uh, Orthodox scholar for 2,000 years. This is a Messianic psalm. This is speaking of the Son of God. I don't know how much clearer we could get. He said to me, you are my son. So there we are. This is a Messianic psalm. And this is really a, a representation in very compact form of the epic drama of all of mankind of all of history and it does point us forward i'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about the forward pointing part we're just going to look at this drama of mankind and the drama i've divided into three parts the rebellion of man on earth the response of god in heaven and the responsibility of man on earth 
So let's start with the rebellion of man. And the scene is here on earth. And what we see are two groups rebelling against God. We could divide them into the crowds and the rulers, uh, the people and the kings. And the psalmist asks this rhetorical question, why do the nations rage? You have, first of all, the crowds. In verse 1, the, the nations, the, we get the word Gentiles from this. Uh, they're, they're raging. It's a word that actually means to be noisy and ready to riot. And if you've ever been in a crowd that, that feels, you can feel the tension that something bad's about to happen, this is what this is. The nations are, are raging, they're rioting. It's even sometimes translated, they're being restless, they're jostling. You have the peoples also, it's the same as the nations, and they meditate on a vain thing. The ESV says they plot in vain. It's the idea of muttering under your breath, of meditating, uh, uh, making some sort of plot. And in this case, it's the overthrow of God. It is the pushing back against God. And, and from our standpoint, we say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody do that? Well, that's the history of the Bible. People trying to overthrow God. So you have the crowds, the peoples, and then you have the other group, the kings or the rulers. They're organized in a grand conspiracy against God and even peoples, the, the implication here is that who are traditionally enemies, they perceive God as their common enemy and so they become, they become grounded together against this common threat. They see the Lord, they see Yahweh and His Messiah, the anointed, as the enemy. So what's the goal of these peoples and these rulers? Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to be free of God, free of accountability. They want to uh, show their hatred toward God. They re- they're resentful of God. They're resentful that the God who created them would dare put boundaries around them. Now, we've seen this play out in Scripture with ultimate fulfillment. We can give you examples of a crowd. Genesis 6-5, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what's the ultimate end of that? That was the flood. And it was so devastating that God graciously promised that he would never do that again. Um, incidentally, he didn't promise he wouldn't burn the whole earth with fire. That's coming down the road. But, uh, so if you read the fine print, it was only water. And what about kings? Has there ever been a time where the kings of the earth take their stand against God? There has been. In Genesis 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. At that moment, Noah is the human king of the earth. He is God's representative on the earth. He is the second Adam, as it were, at that time. But the descendants of Noah, the kings from him, did the opposite. Genesis 11 records the descendants of Noah, the kings that came from Noah, refusing to spread out, refusing to, uh, to cover the earth, and instead gathering as a monument to their own greatness, attempting to build the Tower of Babel. Now, I want to show you how this psalm is applied in the New Testament. It's worth taking a moment to just have you turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, the apostles apply Psalm 2 directly to the death of Christ. That's not the only application, but in this case, they, they do make that application. The apostles Peter and John are doing miracles in the name of Christ. They're preaching the gospel. They're arrested 
by the very same rulers, the very same elders who crucified Christ just a couple of months earlier. Acts 4, beginning in verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had occurred. So when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So the apostles saw the crucifixion of Christ as at least a, a partial, a beginning fulfillment of the rebellion against, uh, against God, against Christ. And obviously it's not the complete fulfillment because uh, the threats from God to mankind continue on in Psalm 2. And so uh, they saw this as the beginning point. But they saw the crucifixion of Christ as a clear rebellion against God. And they, they, they quote here, and by the way, that's the passage that tells us that David wrote Psalm 2. Um, so they're, they're quoting David. And it's very clear from Scripture that the inclination of mankind is to rebel. That's what we do. We rebel against God. It's our heart to hate God. We hate His rightful rule over the earth that He created, over the people that He created. And so the apostles take this as being fulfilled partly at the resurrection, but there's a clearer future element to this. Turn back to Psalm 2 now, just after taking a moment there in Acts 4. And so the the rebellion of man, this first scene, the mask is torn away. There's no more pretending to be Christians. There's no more being fake churchgoers. They're just saying, we don't want God. We want Him away from us. We want to tear the bonds that He would have on us. So part one is the rebellion of man on the earth. Part two of this drama is the response of God. And now the scene is in heaven, and this is the the better part of the psalm. The response of God begins in verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Some have had a problem with this and tried to soften this. We can't soften it, so let me just tell you what this is. This is the laughter of sarcasm. This is the laughter of heckling. This is the laughter of mocking. This is the laughter of, of a, a warrior who's about to kill his enemy, who laughs in his face first. There's no smoothing that over. There's one other time in Scripture that God is said to laugh. In Psalm 37, 13, the Lord laughs at him 
for he sees that his day is coming. This is the Lord laughing at the judgment of the wicked. And you say, oh, that sounds so uncompassionate. Well, that might challenge the little box that we sometimes want to put God in, doesn't it? The box that makes God more like Santa Claus and less like holy God who is fiercely indignant against violations of his own holiness. And it's important for us to remember that God is glorified by the giving of his grace and God is glorified by the giving of his wrath. That hell will glorify God just as heaven does. Everything glorifies God. And so God laughs at the hopeless cause of mankind who would try to stand up to him. And and you can picture this. Mankind gathered together and they're all going, we're going to get you, God. You know, and, and the ridiculousness of that. They, they, they can't see over a horizon. God is the God who sees over the whole universe. And so it's ridiculous. And so he laughs. In Noah's day, God judged the earth with a flood. In the next generation, he just confused the languages. In Jesus' day, when the rulers of the earth killed the Messiah... God raised him from the dead and there's the clear implication uh, that all the wicked of the earth should go, "Uh uh-oh, the Messiah was raised from the dead. Something bad's going to happen. And so first God laughs, but then that laughter, there's no giggling here. There's no silliness. That's not the type of laughter. This laughter gives way to holy indignation very quickly. Verse 5 has two parallel statements that mean the same thing. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, this is the coming of the wrath of God. He's promising the coming of the wrath of God. And let me give you a little definition of the wrath of God I think is helpful. It is divine indignation against the violation of God's character. It's divine indignation against the violation of God's character. But there's a second component to it. The wrath of God has the purpose of righteous and deserved retribution. It's not the emotion of anger. It is the expression of divine retribution. That is the ultimate wrath of God. So when we talk about wrath, it's not that God was emotionally mad, although that's certainly part of it. It's that he is giving retribution. There are so many metaphors for the wrath of God in Scripture. A flood, a river of wrath, a cup filled with wine, a fiery furnace, a rod of iron, an earthquake, a storm, a consuming fire. All kinds of metaphors. But here's what is eye-catching to us. Verse 5, he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, what's the most terrifying thing God can promise? He's promising to send his son. That's what is to terrify the world. Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is the expression of the wrath of God, that he's sending his son to judge the world. It says, I've installed my king. I gave you some of the metaphors for the wrath of God, like a flood, a river of wrath. Uh, This Hebrew word installed actually means I have poured out my king, like pouring out the wrath of God, pouring out the hot lava to burn up the wicked of the world. And the Messiah will come from heaven to the earth and he comes to Zion, the little tiny southern hill of Jerusalem that now refers to all of Jerusalem. And why is Zion God's holy hill? Because God is holy and God has come to Zion and that makes it holy. 
And 31 times in the Old Testament, God Himself is called the Holy One of Israel. And you recall that Nathaniel uh, recognized this in Christ. And he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he essentially gives him that title, the Holy One of Israel. And so this is the wrath of God that's coming, that Christ is coming. This is why it's so important, and we've talked about this in other times, it's so important to differentiate between the rapture and the second coming of Christ because they have two entirely different purposes. The rapture is, is all about joy and meeting the Lord in the air and, and resurrection and, and glory with, with Christ. The second coming is all about judgment. And so they're, they're very, very different in purpose. And now we have the king himself speaking in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the decree of God that a certain type of king would sit on the throne of the world forever. And, and we talked about this this weekend, but don't mistake the word begotten as an indication that Jesus is less than eternal. This is speaking of the idea that he is of the essence of God. Um, but many see this also as the coronation of King Jesus, the official crowning of Christ. And, and that's not readily apparent in the text, but I think it's a, a reasonable conclusion. So what else did the father tell the son? Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So how is God going to give Jesus the nations as his heritage? Well, two ways. First, Christ will conquer and second, Christ will judge. First, he'll conquer. And this is what he means by when we use the phrase ruling with a rod of iron, that doesn't have to do so much with the totality of his millennial reign. That has to do with his coming. That he's going to, I, I like this translation, he breaks them with a rod of iron. So he conquers them, first of all. In Zechariah 14, 12, this will be the plague with which Yahweh will plague all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. So not only will he conquer, but then longer term, he'll judge. He'll judge as well. Joel 2.32, it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As Yahweh has said, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. So you might say this Messiah you're describing is scary. Yes, he is. Jesus said in John 5 that all authority to judge has been given to him. All authority. He's going to break them with a rod of iron. It's an interesting phrase. Even as late as the time of King Saul, the first king of Israel, the ability to forge and make iron was actually pretty rare in the ancient Near East. In fact, the Israelites uh, very often had to go to the Philistines to sharpen their instruments and to get iron things because the Philistines were the one that had it. So a king that had an iron scepter was a big deal. It was a big deal to have an iron sword. And so the king that had this iron scepter was the strongest king. It said, I have all the power. And he says, I'm going to shatter them. You will shatter them like a potter's vessel. The vessel belongs to the one who made it. And if the potter doesn't like the way the vessel turned out, he can smash it to pieces. Now, if you know your New Testament at all, that's starting to sound a little familiar, isn't it? Because Romans 9 tells us the same thing, beginning in verse 20. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? The potter gets to shatter the vessels that don't glorify him. That is his right. That's the response of God. So in part one, we have the rebellion of man. They plot in vain to overthrow God. Part two, the response of God. He laughs at the vain rebellion of man and he does the most fearsome thing he can do. He promises to send his son to judge the world. But like all the Psalms, this Psalm gives hope. Psalm 2 gives a way out for sinful mankind. There's still time. And the fact that we're able to sit here and study the psalm means there's still time. We're, we're still in the in, in era of grace. And so part three, we go to the responsibility of man. And the scene is on the earth. What's the only cure for rebellion? There's one cure. It is not intellectual assent that I believe in Jesus. It is not some sort of emotional experience that makes you think that you've met Jesus. It is not... Reading your Bible, it is not prayer. There's only one cure for rebellion, and that is repentance. Repentance is granted as a gift from God by faith. He gives you the faith. He gives you repentance. And yet we are fully responsible. And what we're going to see in verses 10 through 12 are some demands on mankind. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have five imperatives here. There's five demands that God makes. This is what repentance looks like. If somebody questions, well, I don't know how to repent, take him to Psalm 2, 10 through 12 because it tells you how. Here are the five demands. The first demand, show insight. That's a really nice way of saying, don't be an idiot. Show Insight says this, God crushed the rebellion in Noah's day. He thwarted the plot against him at the Tower of Babel. He destroyed Pharaoh's army when Israel was escaping from Egypt. In the days of prophet, the prophet Isaiah and King Hezekiah, Assyria surrounded Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. The angel of Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, destroyed them in one fell swoop. God raised Jesus from the dead when his enemies thought they were rid of him. So scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that God always judges the wicked. He always does. He always judges those who rebel against God. So so the psalmist says, show insight, be wise, don't be stupid, don't throw your life away, don't throw your soul away, don't throw your nation away. The second demand he makes Take warning. It literally means be disciplined, be chastened, be admonished. Take the whipping, take the spanking. What is he saying? He's saying when you hear you're a sinner who has violated the very holiness of God, don't let that cross-armed pride keep you from an eternity with God. 
Don't let that pride of that moment of hearing that you are, you are depraved and you have no hope, don't let your pride say, well, I can't possibly assent to some sort of bowing the knee to God. Because you will bow the knee to God. It'll either be because you love Him or because He forces you. That will happen. And so it's take warning. Take the spanking. Take the admonishment. Take the humiliation of of acknowledging that I have nothing to give God. That I am nothing and He is everything. Take the spanking. The third demand. Serve Yahweh with fear. Serve Yahweh with fear. Instead of plotting against God, serve God. Serve Him with fear and reverence, acknowledging His might. You know, when someone says, well, I've, you know, I've repented, I'm, I'm sorry for my sin. Okay, next question. How are you serving God then? How is your life showing that you now belong to Him, that, that you are His slave? How is it showing that? Because if you're not, then what you think was repentance was fake. Because truly repentant people serve God. They serve Yahweh with fear. He makes a fourth demand. Rejoice with trembling. This is a Hebrew word that means shout for joy while you tremble. We've talked about this before here at Grace, that the act of gathering together the worship is, a, is, the, is almost a contradiction in terms. We gather to rejoice and we gather in fear at the same time. And this is exactly what this is talking about. You rejoice with trembling, knowing that you could have been the recipient of the rod of his mouth, the fury of his wrath, but instead... If you'll show insight, if you'll take warning, if you'll serve God with fear, now you can rejoice. But always with trembling, always remembering where you came from, always remembering who you are and who He is. And then there's a fifth demand. And this is the Christological nature of salvation. There is no salvation apart from Christ. You must get all the way to the fifth demand. Kiss the Son. Kiss the sun. Now this is the imagery of approaching a mighty king and crawling on your face, not daring to look up and graciously kissing his feet, perhaps if he offers his hand to kiss his hand. It is an act of honor. It's an act of submission, of loyalty. It is to pay homage. It is to give honor that's due. Instead of crying out against the anointed of God, As we saw in verse 2, instead come boldly to the throne of grace. But you notice the admonition here? Do it quickly. Why? His wrath may soon be kindled. His wrath may soon be kindled. And there's actually some debate among scholars. Does that mean it's going to happen soon or that when it happens, it happens really fast? It doesn't matter. The warning has the same end result, right? Probably it's going to happen soon and it'll happen really fast. I, I, I think that's the best way to look at it. So what's the result of this repentance? How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God is holy. His holiness demands retribution. He wouldn't be holy without retribution against all those who have violated His will and rebelled against His law. But what's God's desire for you? What's God's desire for the elect? Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the sons of men will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And I love Psalm 59, 17, O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. 
God is my stronghold. He's a, he's a fortress. You, it's something you hide behind. Now, here's the eternal mystery, and I think this is something so important for our Christology, for our understanding of Christ, that the very Son of God, who will be the one who is the expression of the wrath of God, He will be the one to pour out the fury of God's righteous indignation against His holiness upon the whole earth, and He will do so with such power that it's with words that He kills that he'll create a 184-mile-long battle zone with blood everywhere by the word of his power. He's also the one who died so that those who have faith in him don't have to face his wrath. That's mind-blowing to think about that. He is the same person. That's a fuller Christology than the Jesus is my boyfriend of American evangelicalism. By dying on the cross, Jesus saved us from himself. He saved us from the wrath that he will be to the earth at the orders of his Father. So now we've organized Psalm 2 into this drama with three parts, the rebellion of man, the response of God, the responsibility of man. I want to do one last curtain call of all the main characters and just to kind of bring them all back on stage, so to speak. Here are the characters in this psalm. They're the nations and the kings. They're pictured in the psalm as defying God. They're ultimately arrogant, so arrogant. They rage against God. They meditate something vain. And we have God the Father. God the Father is called by His covenant name, Yahweh. He's called in verse 4, the Lord, Adonai, the Master. He is the Kingmaker. In verse 6, I have installed my king. He's the laughing one of heaven who mocks his enemies. So he is Yahweh, the Lord, the kingmaker, the laughing one of heaven. We have in this curtain call God the Son, presented in, in such glory here. He's called the anointed of God. A, a kingly designation is the one who's chosen, solely chosen. He's called the king. He's the punisher of the rebellious earth. He's the expression of the wrath of God. He's also the expression of the grace of God, the one whom you take refuge in. So he's the anointed who's chosen, who's consecrated. He's the king. He's the punisher. He's the expression of the wrath of God. He's the expression of the grace of God. And then on the stage, we have those who will perish under the sun's judgment. We could call them the perishing. They will suffer what we read in Zechariah 14. They will suffer at the great white throne judgment when the books are opened and every sin of every rebel is held against them to the fullness of God's judgment. And then finally, we're joined on the stage by those who are blessed under the sun's protection, the blessed ones, the blessed They've taken refuge. They've submitted to the demands of God. They've repented. They've shown insight. They've taken warning. They've served Yahweh with fear. They're rejoicing with trembling and they're giving proper honor and dominion to the Son of God. They have kissed the Son. Now I bring those characters back because I think you can probably see the clear connection to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the contrast of two types of men. Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Those are the blessed. And the end of Psalm 1, but the way of the wicked will perish. The perishing. Or if we could put it this way. Jesus is engaged in a very specific ministry at this moment. 
He's engaged in his high priestly ministry. He is engaged in the ministry of being our advocate, our ministry of reconciliation, of inviting sinners to have peace with God through him, through the death that paid the penalty for sin. He's the one who says in Matthew 11, call to me, come to me rather, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is the one who wept over Jerusalem, longing for the repentance of his people. He is the one currently seated at the right hand of God who won't let one accusation against you be piled up on another. That he is constantly advocating for you. This is his high priestly ministry. And he's pictured as seated. He waits and he waits and he waits because there's a day coming when the high priestly ministry now gives way, as it were, to a different ministry He gets up off the throne of reconciliation and he dresses for battle. And his high priestly ministry now gives way to his kingly ministry. Rather than inviting sinners to find peace and reconciliation, his focus will be on dashing entire nations to pieces like a potter takes a pot and just shatters it to the floor. So Psalm 2 is, is is a... heartfelt warning that that day is coming and it asks a clear question will you be among the blessed or among the perishing will you repent or will you rage or will you kiss the sun or will you be killed by the sun and it gives that clear choice and so it serves along with psalm 1 as a glorious glorious spotlight on the rest of psalms and it invites the listener to be on the correct side of God. I hope that that's encouraging to you. I hope that you can use Psalm 2 as a way to share the gospel with the lost because it is very evangelistic. Let's pray together and we'll be done this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this time to look ever so briefly at Psalm 2 and to see these truths just kind of in cursory form here this morning. And while I can't speak for everyone here, I, I have a pretty good guess that what I say is accurate in that we all give you thanks that we are among the blessed ones. We give you thanks that before the foundation of the world, you chose us in Christ. That we will never see the wrath of God because it was poured out on your dear Son. That we will never experience your righteous indignation against our sin that you literally view us as having the righteousness which belongs to Christ alone. And even while we're still stuck on this sinful world and in our sinful flesh, yet by your magnanimous grace, you view us as we will be. You have begun our salvation and you have promised that you will bring to completion that which you have begun that you will consummate our salvation, that when we see Christ, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And oh, how we will kiss the Son. How we will grab His feet and delight in Him. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you have brought us into the kingdom of light and placed us among those who take refuge under the shadow of your wings. We thank you and praise you in our Savior's name. Amen.